Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 45. I'm Mike Uptograff. And I'm Joshua Klein. And uh, as always, there's uh, exciting news going on around here. Yeah, we got issue 13 uh, in production. Uh, we have about half of our articles in and edited and, and working. Yeah. we're working those things out. Um, we have other uh, articles still coming in from authors. So we're excited about this. We're excited about uh, how each of these pieces are coming together. We have uh, one in particular that uh, we've been putting together and it, it's sort of, sometimes we have these articles that are kind of, I wouldn't say the back burner, but they're sort of these ideas that we want to pursue or we, we want to do something like this and we're just waiting for the right time. Mm-hmm. And this issue, uh, this particular article came together uh, in a way that we're excited about, something we haven't quite done before. Yeah. And uh, another uh, article that we're really excited about is um, one of our grant recipients from last year has finished his research mm-hmm. and is uh, putting together the final touches right now on his article. Um, so in issue 13, we'll have our first grant recipient published. And uh, also, uh, along those same lines, we have just awarded our two grants for 2022, mm. uh, our craft research grant program. Uh, so these are basically, we open it up for people to apply, um, to to reach out to us, fill out an application, give us, uh, you know, basically the idea of what they want to pursue in terms of craft research. We really want to reach people who, you know, have some fascination, but they don't have a, a way forward necessarily in pursuing uh, researching that area. And so uh, this year we've uh, awarded the, this uh, research grant to um, Aaron Keim and Tiago Silva. Mm. So Aaron is a ukulele maker. Uh, which is awesome. Yeah, but he yeah. And, and a work songer. Is yes, one way to put it that he's really into uh, historic songs that were sung during work, during manual right. labor. Uh, and he sent us some of his uh, one of his songbooks actually, and mm-hmm. you know was talking about that with us. So, uh, yeah, really cool guy. Yeah, and so he's going to uh, study traditional ukulele making and reproduce a traditional instrument using um, tools and techniques of you know the past centuries so uh that's going to be awesome and uh tiago uh lives in brazil and he uh, brazil is an interesting country because they they were uh, you know colonized by the portuguese around 500 years ago um and then they were heavily influenced by a lot of other um cultures and nations uh but they also had a very rich and and diverse culture of their own you know and then the Amazon rainforest is right there, and so you have about the richest concentration of of uh, tree species anywhere on the planet. Um, and so he really wants to get to the roots of what is traditional handcraft in his country. Hmm. Um, so he's going to be traveling around, uh, you know, cruising around the country, interviewing craftspeople, and and figuring out, uh, you know, what what are the roots of this really. Uh, diverse handcraft culture here. Well, it, it, he was saying that he's been told that there really isn't much of a, a woodcraft tradition right. in Brazil. And he's like, and he's like that's that, not true that at can't all. can't be, yeah. no, no. Yeah. And so he's got some leads and some ideas and things he wants to pursue to to highlight mm-hmm. these uh, this traditional craftsmanship. That, mm-hmm. That's, you know, a big important part of 
uh, Brazil's history. Yeah. So yeah, super exciting to see these research grants coming together and to see, you know, last year's coming to fruition mm-hmm. and next year's being, uh, this, this next year's being sent out and to go do some good research to celebrate this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we wanted today to talk about uh, what we're calling just the facts, <laughs> just the FAQs, um, because, you know, at M&T, we have a kind of a distinctive flavor, a distinctive vision for uh the kind of woodworking that we do and that we teach about. And so when we talk about pre-industrial woodworking or using wooden hand planes or, you know, different um, pre-industrial mentalities, uh, we found that a lot of woodworkers, 21st century woodworkers, come to us with this, um, you know, like this sort of recurring theme of questions, I guess. The the most common uh, question we get, whether it's a student in front of us or it's a comment on the blog, the recurring questions keep coming. And so what we found is that there are sort of these streams of um, the, the most common headings, the most common right. topics. And there are questions uh, that keep uh, recurring, but also it's just they kind of all are related under these five headings that we found as we've combed through all the questions we answer, just yeah. try to, okay, and it seems to be there are themes. And that to us highlights um, the, the the gap or the the difference between what our vision of woodworking is, what we're doing, and what most people seem to be used to, and you know what the the questions are revealing, I guess is right. what we yeah. realized. Yeah, I mean, people ask about what they don't understand, obviously, and so um, if you're a woodworker who's been doing it for forty years and you come upon some new or unique or different way of doing things, you know, you will have questions uh, in the areas where it most differs from sure. your practice. So. Uh, this is this is kind of about that. This is the the kinds of questions that we hear from people, uh, which um, really kind of shows how, uh, like you said, the the flavor is a bit different mm-hmm. around here. Yeah, just like if I was <laughs> if I was going to walk into sort of an an engineer minded woodworker's shop, and uh, they were talking about how things go, I would be full of questions. But, but don't you have to, and how, how would you do yeah, this? And how, you, do you know, so uh, what we're going to do is talk about some of those topics and talk about um, the, the practical, how it plays out. And some of them are, some of the questions are really, um, you know, tip based. They're really about, you know, how do you do this? Do you care about that? Uh, but some of them are a little bit more um, mentality based. You know, what do you think about this, this kind of thing? So mm-hmm. I guess without further ado, we could dive yeah. into them, talk, uh, work through them systematically, and, and kind of talk about some of these these uh, questions we get. Yeah. So uh, in the first category, um, I'll just categorize it. Uh, people ask us about our workbenches, and I think that the workbench is a, a great metaphor. It's not just a uh, you know like where do you get your workbench plans? Like the, right. the workbench as a metaphor is an interesting thing. Um, because you know it sort of forms the foundation of your whole craft philosophy you know if if you are um working from a low or roman bench that informs how you do every operation if you're working from you know an english style joiners bench or nicholson bench or um, anything like that it's it, it informs how you go about your work if you're working from a super fancy high end french polished workbench that also informs how you do your work on it. You know, right. basically you're protecting the bench from your work all the time. When I built my first workbench, I was doing furniture conservation 
And I read Scott Landis's book, The Workbench Book, which is a great book. Um, and he was showing all these different styles of workbenches and was describing um, these woodworkers and what their particular focus was. And that really helped inform what I was going to design my bench based on. So I you know, did a hybrid of stuff. But furniture conservation has very different needs from pre-industrial furniture making, so, such that so extreme that... I built my bench, which I felt really happy with for furniture conservation. And then when I started getting into actually um, building with a pre-industrial mentality, I had to, you know, take my bench apart and modify it and change things and mm. scrape all the finish off the top and all that kind of stuff to make it work for pre-industrial woodworking. Wow. Uh, yeah. So one of the questions which seems to kind of summarize um, these these uh, uh, things that people are wondering about uh, these kind of benches that we're using is um, one we just got actually the other day. Uh, someone asked, do you use any protection on the benches um, after your occasional cleaning planning procedures like linseed oil or something to prevent uh, them from getting stained or do you just leave the top unfinished? Um, yeah, we we get the question a lot. Like, do you put finish on your bench top? Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, no, absolutely not. I would say if you, I sort of have a a jest, a little uh, tongue-in-cheek description of some of the benches you'll find. I describe them as bowling alley benches, yeah. that it's all like high varnished and you know super slick, which is exactly what you do not want for a workbench top. Mm-hmm. You don't want a slick surface. You want a, a, a raw, grippy surface that's going to hold on to your work. Um, and also one that you don't have to be precious about and really, really um, fastidious to maintain. So um, the, the, there's one liability to it, um, and that is if you have a raw bench top, if you have some stain, if you're doing finishing on your workbench, you're yeah. going to get stain on your bench, which is a bummer and can leave stuff. So when I'm staining something or I'm you know yeah. painting, I don't do that on top of my workbench. I do right. that on something else. Um, but... Uh, our, a, a workbench is a work surface. And so you want as much grip as possible, especially when you're not using a tail vise or other kinds of you know, your work that is uh, always constrained or restrained down to the bench, uh, whether it's a, a vise or a clamp or a hold fast or a tail vise or something like that. Um, if you're going to be doing what we call free woodworking, which just means it's the, the board is free and just pressed against a stop, then you really want your, your bench top to have grip to it. Right. Bowling alleys aren't known for their grip, I find. <laughs> um, yeah, so so sort of the metaphor for this section, these questions about the bench is practical, not showy. Right. Uh, the, the kind of thing we're pursuing here in, in our, our work um, is, is that it's practical. Like the bench top will get beat up. Yep. And that's just the nature of it. It's like if you have a, a hewing stump or something, mm-hmm. you're not looking to protect that surface. You're looking to use it you will wear it away. Eventually, those big, uh, thick bench boards, the top boards down there, will probably have to be replaced or repaired. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a few years down the road. Yeah, sure. Um, but in the meantime, though, we use them without concern. Uh, it's it's kind of like um, we, we always kind of made fun of this or were made fun of when we'd go to the Lee Nielsen open house uh, they're so generous down there with their vendors, and everyone gets a um, Lee Nielsen workbench, mm. right? These beautiful, super heavy, rugged uh, workbenches for their displays and for their demonstrations and stuff like that. 
And so when we'd go to that, we'd always bring have our rickety little the rickety the little takedown bench, <laughs> yeah, softwood bench uh, that you know comes apart into six pieces and can store flat in the back of the van. And uh, we'd be like, no, we're we're good. We want to beat on the bench. You know, <laughs> yeah. we we don't want to worry about yeah. damaging your your pristine bench. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of along the lines of this. Like a bench is. Uh, almost a consumable. Yeah, I mean, I have heard some wood, uh, woodworkers talk about having sacrificial, you know, material down on the workbench top. So if they're chopping or paring, there's always a sacrificial material down. Yeah. Now, obviously, if you're, if you're doing heavy chopping or something, you don't want to chop a big chunk out of your bench top. That's right. just annoying. I, right. I get that. But just for normal paring or normal sawing, you mm-hmm. have to protect the work surface from right. work. Yeah. I, I just, I can't yeah. wrap my head around that. So, and uh, yeah, uh, any historic benches you look at are, uh, so in general, they appear to have the snot beat out of them. Yeah. And some people would say, well, that was abuse later, right? That no, was, no, that's like 30 that years That was of this abuse. guy's grandson out there. And no, you look at it and you say, no, this is where it was used. Look, over here on this corner is where he did chopping like yeah, this is where totally. he did this operation and look at this side of the bench this is where uh the planing stop was and look at that it's just massively beat up yeah um and you so you can see where that work was done on the bench it was not considered a pristine or show surface of any sort it right. was a work surface right so i mean that's of course related to flattening so the question yes, right. is you know um this is also a sort of lumped in with that is you know what about flattening the bench top if you're going to be okay with you know saw teeth hitting the bench uh, occasionally right. or you know uh, an errant chisel you know dinging the the workbench top then aren't you worried about flattening how are you going to keep everything flat and the answer is you don't really need very much of your bench flat right it really is only if you're using you should have some part of it flat uh, and that is where you're going to be planing your board so right in front of uh the 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 bench hook, the tooth planing stop right in front of that, you know, a few feet there, right where you're going to be planing. And you want to be using that, the workbench top as a registration surface, a, a flat. So when you're planing, you're not wobbling around. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and I do have that. I maintain that little area, maybe 12 inches in from the edge of the bench and, you know, three feet down from mm-hmm. the planing stop. That's about it. That's yeah. the only thing that's that sort of defines the, the typical size of the boards you're planing there. Yeah, exactly. And the, because I'm building furniture, if right. I was doing other stuff, I would need to think about the scale that I'm working at. But then all the rest of the bench is whatever. Right. It's actually a little bit below the plane of that because I have, so we have this auxiliary board at the back of the bench. Our benches mm-hmm. are 30 inches deep and we just have a one inch pine board on the back that just holds tools and stuff. Right. I yeah. mean, it's not like you're not chopping 30 inches away from you. Right. It's not a thick yeah. workbench top that needs to be dead flat. You're not working over there. Mm-hmm. That's where you set your your plane or something. So it really is only the first foot in from the edge that's flat and yeah. just the first few feet to the planing stop. So you can think about maintenance then and you think, okay, well, that's actually pretty easy to make yeah, sure that's flat. That's a very a small area. Wide board. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> then what you can do is you can, you know, move over to the end of the bench and you can have an area that is kind of a little bit chewed up and mm-hmm. not worry about it. And you can do all your pairing over there or you're kind of chopping or whatever. 
And you know, when I'm doing, if I'm pairing pins, yeah, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna be doing it on a, um, you know, the the wooden bench hook or something like that, or some other sort of sacrificial surface. Um, so I'm not, con- I'm personally not continuously gouging a deep hole in my bench top just because I know it's it's impractical to do that. I'm gonna have to fix that in a little while. Yeah. Um, but there's this, you know, there's a whole variety of different. Um, work mentalities, I guess there are different ways people have worked in the past. And you look at historic workbenches, as you've said, Mike, and a lot of them are just like a beaver went to town on the end of the bench or something. It's just totally, they did not even begin to pretend to keep the surface protected. Yeah. Um, I think about, um, you know, the the examples of uh, Jonathan Fisher's Mm workbenches, how a lot of people do not... um, you know, they're really cautious about boring holes in their bench top for bench dogs or for hold fasts or whatever. And um, Fisher was kind of the opposite there. Mm-hmm. He was the other way. He appeared to bore holes everywhere, you know, anytime. You know, it was easier probably for him to, to bore a hole to put a peg in than to move the board he was working. <laughs> it almost looks like at times. Um, so his, his surviving benches um, are just full of, of holes for, I assume, for work holding, mm-hmm. um, because he had that mindset. Like this yeah. is for doing what I need it to do. So I'm going to put a hole here to put a peg in. Yeah. Well, and this isn't a workbench, but his shaving horse, the front of his shaving horse, the, the the front end of it beyond the bridge or at the beginning of the bridge, uh, is hollowed out about three inches deep right. from his axe. Yeah. You can see all these axe marks, and that was the spot <clears throat> he was hewing the rounds. He was hewing the the um, the riven stalked into rounds, and then he before would he, cl- clearly, and then he'd walk yeah, over the shaving horse shave and it. shave it, <clears throat> which is just amazing. You know, no one would think to do that today, mm-hmm. um, but that wasn't really that big of a deal because it's just a shaving horse. Right. And the other part of it, I think, is um, our workbench top is softwood, right? Um, yeah. And so what's really great about that is it's two inch thick softwood. So when it gets beat up, you just take it off and put another one on, right? It's not a big deal. Yeah. So in 15 years, when we use it up, if yeah. we use it hard, really hard, that's fine. Just yeah. get another Swap one. Swap it out, get a new it's one. It's not like some expensive, you know, bird's eye maple thing that I don't want to have mm-hmm. to buy this again. Um, it's it's an expendable thing. So if you say, oh, but, you know, softwood and hold fast holes and doesn't don't th- that those holes wear out and, you know, wallow out and aren't you worried about staining and aren't you worried about marring it? Yeah. No, because it's yeah. replaceable. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? really, hold fast holes in softwood will eventually ream themselves out to the point where the hold fast doesn't hold anymore. Um, I haven't yet observed that. Haven't seen it theoretically happen that's all possible. the way. Yeah. Uh, at which point you could bore a new hold fast hole three inches away, or mm-hmm. you know you can consider, you know, moving where you're working, or at that point maybe you say maybe it's time for a new two inch board. Or plug it. Yeah. Plug and bore it. another one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really freeing when you approach your bench as this is for work. This is not for show. Yeah, um, exactly. That's the principle: practical, not showy. Yeah, that's how we we always try to emphasize <clears throat> that. That um, for us, this is not about you know showing the you know the best way to do things. That's the most sophisticated, or the most you know historically pure, or the right. none of that stuff. We don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah. It really is. If we're gonna work by hand, we're committed to working with hand tools. Mm-hmm. So. If we're going to commit to working by hand, what's the most practical way to do it? Yeah. 
And the reason we default to historic answers is because yeah. these were the people who were doing they, it day in and day out. Found the they, most they found the most practical. Yeah. That's our concern. That's what, why we go to historic sources. It's not some sort of purity thing. Right. And so along those same lines, uh, in terms of like talking about how flat does the top of your bench need to be and that sort of thing, uh, we're dealing with a different set of tolerances. Here. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, hand-tool woodworking, uh, especially when you consider secondary surfaces, tolerances are much looser, right? You, yep. I'll say much freer. Freer. That's, that's a, a good way of looking at it. They're um, not constrained. Yeah, So exactly. So precise where it needs to be, but anywhere else it, you have freedom, mm-hmm. right? You, you don't have to, it's not a mach, machine mentality. Um, one of the places that we, um, you know, any woodworker who's been around and who has listened to all the podcasts and watched the shows and, and all that, you, um, hear about sharpening, right. And, uh, sharpening systems that are available out there. And, uh, these involve jigs and machines and different grits and different, occasionally very expensive, uh, <laughs> Uh, get-ups and, you know, three-hour-long DVDs that you can purchase with your new kit. And, and you know, you can spend a, an amazing amount of money um, on these uh, jig sharpening systems mm-hmm. because, you know, absolute precision is is vital, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, anyway, that's what, that's what we're taught. That's what we hear. And so... You know, there's a lot of the machine mentality that's worked its way into even hand tool woodworking. Yep. Um, into the tools, we we hear about how precise um, the measuring tools are, how precisely made the uh, the the hand tools and everything are. Um, and so we have always uh, sought to kind of push back against that. Yep. A little bit. We're, well, in, yeah. So, like for example, with like freehand honing. Right. Um, we don't use. Um, honing guides or any of those jigs or anything to do that um again it's not because it's some sort of pure way to do it or it's some like you know showy way to do it no it's just really practical it's just so much faster to just hold the iron you want to sharpen and just rub it on the stone um you have to learn the skill you have to uh, know how to do that effectively it's Mm -hmm. not just as simple as just put the thing on the stone and rub it around right but what's interesting to me is a lot of people think yeah, but learning this skill, learning how to hold my hand in that certain way is so um, is so challenging. That would take me so much time, and I can't in- invest that kind of time. Mm-hmm. I just want to, um, you know, get have the jig that yeah, I can the instantly I the fix, first time I, I do it, it works. Yeah. Um, and I remember talking um, with Deneb uh, at uh, Lee Nielsen, and he was talking about their sharpening. Uh, uh, mentality, their sharpening procedure, he, he told me, we have this very, very orderly do this and then this and then this and then this because we're trying to get perfect results with the very first time anyone ever sharpens anything. Mm-hmm. And that is effective. You say, follow, right. it's like a recipe, follow A, yep. B, C, D all the way down. And if you do all the steps correctly in order, you'll end up with the perfect result. Right. And that's, gr- that's great until you need a gouge right? or you want you know severe camber or something. Yeah. And you have to you know, learn to do it freehand and then you might not be able to do it as well. So the thing about freehand that I have heard is that it's so challenging that that would be, you know, why do that when we have the jig here? But it's so interesting because in our apprenticeship program, Mm. our students week one is sharpening 
and we ha- we teach them freehand sharpening. Yeah. And I, I mean, unless I'm misremembering, I think very, very few of them have done any freehand sharpening. The yeah, vast this, majority yeah. have either done no sharpening ever, right, or uh, they've only used jigs to sharpen, to hone yeah. uh, their irons or their chisels. And, uh, you know, we, are, we it's just a five-day, it's just, you know, one week of talking about sharpening. They have, a, you know, an hour, a couple hours a day of yeah. kind of practicing, playing around with it. By the end of the week, they're like, oh, man. Yeah. This is great. I'm a convert. What the, yeah, they're always like, I'm a convert. Yeah. What in the world? I can't believe that. Uh, this is so straightforward. So it's one of those things. It's like anything. You know, if you just invest a little bit of time, develop that feel, right. then it's unlocked. <clears throat> and then you can just go forward. I, I mean, it really is. It really is like riding a bike. Mm. I don't ever think about how to hold my hand when I'm right. you know, honing my plane iron. It's just I, I feel it. It's like it's in my my hand knows where it is, and I feel what's wrong and what's right. Right. Um. Like walking up a you know a set of stairs, you don't think about where your feet are next walking. Step, you just know step, how to step. use your feet, and it's the same thing. It's not that big of a deal at all, just with a little bit of practice. And it's interesting to think about. Um. It, you know, it's not just with sharpening, but with any jigged operation where you your input is is just the motive input, right? You're just inputting the power. Mm -hmm. Uh, The precision is done elsewhere. The precision is in the jig or in the fence or whatever. Something external. Right. So To you. um, When that's the case, when you're engaging in a jigged operation, you're removing a lot of understanding from what's going on. Um, So like when you are allowing your center wheel um, jig to... Uh, fix the angle and sharpen, you're you're basically um, distancing yourself from what's going on at the edge of that blade, that iron or that chisel. You're you're not interacting with it as much as you are when you are holding that angle in freehand honing. Um, when you're honing and you're holding the angle, you're feeling all that's going on. You, you, you say, okay, I'm going to put a little more pressure on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. You're watching the stone to see where it's leaving that dark line of material, and you're just focusing your effort. That way, you, you pick up your iron or your chisel, and you look at it. You wipe it off, and you look, and you say, okay, right there is where I'm focusing my effort. That's where I'm getting that mirror polish. Mm-hmm. And you adjust, and you adapt, and you you're basically really understanding what sharp feels like mm-hmm. as you're making it. Yep. With a jig, the jig is doing all that for you. And like you said, you go through the steps and then you're done. And you say, well, I've sharpened, but you don't really understand or feel what's going on. Um, so when you have a hiccup, when you have a problem or that other tool like a gouge or a cambered, like a four-plane iron, um, you might be at a loss because the jig can't do it for you. Yeah, and I think the reason too, so again, this isn't about like being showy or doing some sort of parlor trick. Look, right. I can freehand hone. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a super practical because, so uh, a prior podcast, we were talking about defining craftsmanship and we defined it as attuned dexterity. Mm-hmm. So dexterity, your ability to manipulate your hands to do a certain thing. And then attuned, meaning you're aware of what's going on. Uh, you know, uh, when something is attuned, it's like a guitar that every string, they're tuned to each other. It's They're in harmony with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in harmony with, you know, when you're attuned to what's going on around you, then you can adapt. So let's say the, the high E string in your guitar is a little off. 
You don't go, okay, well, let's just take all the strings off and put new strings on and start fresh and try to get new. You just right. go, I need to tweak it just a touch because yeah. I can hear it's a little bit off. Yeah. So in the same way, when you're sharpening freehand, let's say you have a jig. Let's say you have a really elaborate jig that's really very controlled. And you could, this is a theoretical made up jig, but you could you know, prescribe the amount of camber and you can have mm-hmm. this whole thing. And you basically, you you have you do you work with the jig and you do all of the whole operation and what you're doing is you're sort of um wholesale applying all of the work but if you only actually needed to just touch up that one little far corner or something right then you're wasting a bunch of effort yeah if you could just pay attention and go okay i'm just going to do this one corner done then mm-hmm. it's going to be so much faster so there's a little bit of a hypothetical situation but it's a principle that applies when you get when you the more jigged, the more controlled something is going to be, the more you're locked into that system, and you have to go through all the grits, and you have to go right. through all of the setups, and you have to check all of the fences, and you have to go through all that kind of stuff. But if you had the ability just to look at the edge and see where it needs to be touched, you could just set it on the stone and wipe it yeah. a couple times, and you're done. Um, we just um, in this term of our apprenticeship program, we had this question asked uh, about. Well, how do you how do you keep your stones flat? Because Joshua, what you're saying is, um, all of the the system, the super precise system, uh, relies completely on the precision of every element. Yeah. Right. If totally. anything gets worn, like if your stone has a dish in it, you're done. That's it. Like, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it the whole work. system's you out. You gotta you gotta back up. You gotta flatten your stone. You gotta get out your your glass and your wet back sandpaper, and you gotta flatten everything out. Um, and so. Uh, the student was saying, you know, like if I'm sharpening like this, let's say right in the center of my stone, because when you sharpen, when you do freehand honing, you're running um, uh, parallel to the cutting edge, right? You're going back and Yeah, forth. that's the way we do it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he's saying, so if I do this, I'm where I'm pushing, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'll wear a groove in the stone. How do you keep your stone flat? Um, attunement with, what's that attunement yeah exactly so you move, move over <laughs> from left side to right side right and you go back and forth so it helps to wear the stone evenly but the second thing is since you are registering the bevel with your hand on a flat honestly your stone does not have to be perfectly flat right. in order to still successfully sharpen right. well i mean how did they have nasa flat sharpening stones in the 18th century yeah that's what i want to know they that's amazing that they the did that somehow obviously they didn't have that yeah um and th- so i think it's just you know basically it's sort of it's sort of a, a whole trajectory when you start on a path of saying well i want some more regularity some more control of the outcome mm-hmm. so i'm going to introduce a fence right Okay, now that presumes you have a straight edge to ride on. Right. And, and if you that don't, presumes, you have to make one. and then you have to say, okay, well, how do I get a straight edge? And then you have to have, it just starts cascading into, you're in a whole engineering type system. Yeah. And so there are, there are ways that you can kind of have some uh, restrictions, uh, some sort of uh, additional c- c- uh, constraints like a fence or something, and kind of a hybrid between. But the, the jig path sort of is a path of regularity. And once you right. go down that path, you have to have, everything dead precise mm-hmm. or you're going to have something screwed up right this other path is saying i don't really care about any of that because i can look where the cut needs to be made i can right. look where the edge needs to be honed more so um it's a totally different path yeah i i like the story that roy underhill uh would tell he he'd say you know in because we we have harvested our own sharpening stones 
in the past. We've done, done mm-hmm. some interesting experiments with that. Um, and that's based on a, um, uh, one of Roy's books, one of his Woodwright Companion or Woodwright's Guide books. I forget which one it was, yeah. uh, where he talks about whetstone quarries and finding sharpening stone material and flattening it and all that. Um, but he tells the story about how in Europe, um, oftentimes, uh, there would be like, say, someone's front step in town somehow was found to have great sharpening properties, right? So uh, the woodsman going by in the morning would stop to hone their axe on the front step before going off into the forest. And he said you'd, they'd wear a dish into the front step. Uh, and I assume that this homeowner or, you know, whoever, <laughs> not homeowner, whoever was living there, uh, you know, maybe had a problem with this, maybe didn't, I don't know. Maybe it's a side business. Yeah, maybe, yeah, like uh, like two pence for your, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's very interesting to think about, you know, the practices of the past were not based on the degree of precision that we think is necessary today, and yet they were so able to do precise work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and beautiful work. And so that gives us pause. And, you know, we got to think, so what's the difference? The difference yeah. is their skill, their applied, yeah. their dexterity um, with that operation. And again, so what we've been finding in the apprenticeship program uh, is that it's not actually that much skill. Right. It's not like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you invest yeah. seven years of an apprenticeship yeah full-time, 12 hours a day, six days a week, then sure, mm-hmm. but I couldn't do that. No, it's actually not that big of a hurdle. Right. And we're watching it, you know, every every term that goes by, we see, you know, a handful of people go through it and go, oh, wow, I get yeah. it. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and they're practicing on their own and it's, it's not like they're investing seven years of effort. Right. Uh, so speaking of a very practical question, um, we, we have had asked of us what kind of stones we use. And uh, yours are survivors, right? Yeah. The, the ones here in the shop that, that we use still regularly mm-hmm. uh, have been around for a long time. Yeah, I actually, I, so I was trained in luthery, stringed in cement repair and construction. And um, at the school I went to uh, 15 years ago, uh, we were given, we all bought a set of the... Um, the Japanese water stones, the Kingstone set. So it's 800 grit and 4,000 grit Japanese water stones. They're synthetic stones. And I still haven't used them up. Yeah. Uh, of, you know, that's a long time. Being a woodworker, an active woodworker uh, professionally mm-hmm. for, you know, 15 years, I still haven't used them up. And we share the same stones. Right. Um, so it's not just one person. Um, and so that actually helps. You know, if someone says, oh, well, those things wear so quick, the Japanese stones. Well, sure, maybe every 20 years you're going to have to buy another set of, <laughs> you know, spend 60 bucks and buy another pair. Right. But um, but it's actually pretty amazing. So I have found people talk about, oh, yeah, I've gone through, you know, multiple irons in my plane. Right. And in, in only five years I went through two irons. Right. I'm like what in the heck kind of sharpening are you yeah. doing? Why are you doing all that aggressive You're going back sharpening? Back to the grinder every time. It, that's the only way you could do it. So, mm-hmm. it just highlights the amount of sharpening that has to happen um, is can be focused. When you get right. what is going on, you can just touch it up really quick, and you're not spending all this time with all these jiggers to go through all the grits and just wearing away your right. iron and the stones and everything. You just go, hey, that edge is a little funny, yeah. and, and then touch, touch that up. It. So yeah, I mean for us, it's not about you know oh we only use these. Um, natural stones that we harvested ourselves 
that was fun to do that experiment, yeah. but I don't use them because I still have my Japanese stones right. I haven't used up. Yeah. Your Japanese stones are bigger too. Yeah. <laughs> it, the ones we harvested are, are good for like a knife or something small, but sure. they fit in your pocket. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, we're not working to NASA tolerances. Yeah. So that's, that's the second thing is just lots of questions about sharpening and tolerances and aren't you worried about this kind of thing? Um, that's this whole second umbrella category for us of these kinds of questions we get. So, but the third category is, um, it seems to always come back to and is related to the four plane yeah. or the jack plane, it's also called. And it's this principle of, um, we try to instill when, when we're teaching that we have to sort of recover this idea of working from coarse tools to fine tools. Mm -hmm. um, the, the coarsest tools to the most, uh, you know, refined, like smoothing plane. Because what we find is a lot of people today don't do that. What they do is they go from machinery mm -hmm. to fine tools. Right. They go from machinery to a smoothing plane. Yeah. But there's there's no sense of like, you know, using a, a coarse tool like a foreplane or a hatchet yeah. or, a, the, you know, rip a, a big rip saw or something yeah. like that because that's what machines do now. So what we're trying to recover and, and promote is this uh, this sort of absorbing this idea of using, I think we want people to understand the principle of moving from coarse to fine. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you know, anyone wants to use machinery, but I think the risk is what we've lost is when we go from machinery to fine, then there's then people have missed that principle of coarse to fine. Mm -hmm. They think machines do this and now I only have a smoothing plane. And if something's kind of off, that's the only tool they know how to use. When we can say, hey, you can still cut it you know, a quarter of an inch off the line because you have a four plane, right? You can mm -hmm. just take a few passes and they go, well, no, I have to have it dead on because I only have a smoothing plane. Right. So that would take me all day to get down to the, the line. This principle of course to fine is what we try to instill as much as possible because this is, again, it's, it's not about showy, it's about practical and mm -hmm. you gotta be comfortable using a hatchet. Yeah. That to me and, is just like And using it as long as possible. Exactly. Right, you use, you take these course tools and you, you utilize them as far as you can until you're like you're pushing it, right? <laughs> like until you're almost uncomfortable. And that that's really where um where skill can improve is when you use it farther than you feel comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. Like let's say you're uh, if you have a conservative judgment of yourself. Yes. If you right. if you overestimate your skill. Yeah, you're gonna be blown <laughs> past your line start, all the time. End a little early. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like let's picture you're ripping a board and you really, you don't feel super comfortable ripping. So you stay a quarter of an inch off your line, right? Or, or even more, uh, you're way off your line with ripping. Um, so you move over to the four plane and there are a couple things you can do. You can take a few passes with the four plane and move on to a trying plane or something like that. Or you can take your four plane and go like just about right down to the line, like leave a mm -hmm. whisker above the line. Yep. And that goes really fast with a four plane. Mm -hmm. You can peel off a ton of wood. Uh, and then at that point, you know, you can switch over to the fine tools. But the, the, the idea is that using these coarse tools for as long as possible just maximizes the efficiency of the process. Because they remove so much wood so fast, as long as you're using them in a way in which you're in control, you're getting things done really mm -hmm. quick. As opposed to, let's say you've ripped some stock on the table saw and you take it off and you get your smoother and you start working off these wispy thin shavings 
and you're just working for a really long time to yep. get those wispy thin shavings down to where you want that piece. Yeah, that's not fun. Right, it's I, not. I, yeah, that is not fun. <clears throat> so um, we have, we, we get some questions about the foreplane, and I feel like the foreplane is, is a, a really good metaphor for um, this kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, but people ask a lot, because we use wooden-bodied foreplanes, and again, that, that kind of goes back to this whole idea of precision today, like wooden-bodied plane, isn't that about as crude as it gets? Like, don't you need a metal-bodied plane uh, for if you're going to do any kind of neat work? Um, and the answer is no. But uh, wooden-bodied planes are actually very precise for what they do. They are more than precise enough mm -hmm. for what they do. Yep. They they fix your iron at the angle that it needs to be held at, and they fix the depth of the iron, and they hold it centered within the body, mm -hmm. and it does all that you need it to do and, and beyond that. Yeah, um, and it, it's, I mean, it's the most practical choice. If you're going to be working by hand, wooden hand planes are the way to go because um, stock prep with a heavy you know, like a, a metal bodied plane mm -hmm. that you have to lubricate the sole all the time so it doesn't, you know, stick. Right. Uh, uh, that is not the way to go. You want yeah. a sole that's wood that is free, it glides freely across the surface and also it's lighter right. so that you're not, you know, muscling all this weight around. I mean, wooden hand planes are so much more efficient, but I think that even beyond that, um, what w the next question that comes is, Okay, well, how about those um, those hybrid planes where it's a wooden body, but yeah. it's like the best of both worlds? It's a wooden body with the metal frog, right. like a Stanley frog that's, sitting inside actually, the transitional planes. The the worst of both. That's worlds. actually the worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, almost. Obviously, yeah. the wooden body I, I do think is a good benefit, but um, but yeah, the frogs are part of the problem. I would say mm -hmm. um, the a wooden body hand plane adjusting it with a hammer. Yeah. Um, a regular steel hammer is mm -hmm. the most intuitive sort of adjustment you could possibly come up with. Yeah. If you want to deepen the cut, you tap the back of the iron. Yeah. So that it goes deeper. Right. And if you want to retract the iron, have it mm -hmm. come less, then you tap up at the toe up on front on the strike mm -hmm. button. There's a little wooden insert on many of these planes. You just tap up on the toe and it retracts the iron up. Yeah, that's it. It's that's how you adjust a tiny it little plane. shock. And the thing is, when you get used to it, you know exactly how much you need to tap it. Yep. You you just you know how much of a tap you need to back it to the point where you want to take a whisper of a shaving. You know, you know, one or two taps on the iron to really dig deep, and uh, you you just get the hang of it. Um, <clears throat> but we had someone recently ask us about um, you know, like hammers, like a, a claw hammer, which is often what mm -hmm. we use. Uh, doesn't that leave dents on the top of the plane? Do you do you care about that? Like, uh, will the wood eventually um, compress so that the claw hammer doesn't dent anymore? Or you know, like, how does that how does that work out? Because you don't see many people taking you know hammers to their metal bodied planes. Like, mm -hmm. uh, that's perceived as as a damaging operation. Yeah, yeah. At least they would have a, a like a brass headed right uh, yeah, yeah, plane yeah. adjustment. Yeah, I mean, so when you look at um, historic descriptions of adjusting planes, um, you know, Moxon, 1703, you know, and Nicholson in the early 1800s, um, they're all just talking about using their hammer right. to adjust this stuff. Um, now, I have found, yeah, if you use a, a claw hammer on the toe, on the, you know, on the body of your, your right. plane, you're going to beat it up. And I don't typically 
put a claw hammer right on the body. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a strike button, you can hit the strike button. It's just, yeah. you want to be careful where you're aiming or you'll ding it up, which is just a, an aesthetic thing. It's not a big deal. Um, but on the toe, I have found I use a, a my wooden mallet on the toe because it's just so much more mass. It's just, right. it's, it's a bigger thing you can whack. hit. And then, you know, there's, it's not that big of a deal in terms of denting. But for adjusting the iron, this the steel claw hammer is what you want. I right. mean, it's it works so well. Um, and when you look at every single, every single old plane, yeah, all of them have the, the top of the iron is curled over. Yeah, it's mushroomed. Because it's a little bit mushroomed because everybody was using steel claw hammers to adjust their irons. So that's, that's not some craziness that we're making up. That's just how it's been yep. done. And the idea of these, these um, you know, fancy turned brass plane adjusting hammers that you wouldn't ever touch a, a plane with a, a steel claw hammer is crazy. That's a new idea. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so another question that we hear a lot about uh, in regards to the four plane, because um, the four plane is the... Uh, I'd say the most striking example of what we uh, we talk about with the cambered iron, right? So this is an iron whose edge is not straight, but it has a slight curve to it. So mm -hmm. think of like uh, an ice cream scoop, like dishing out, skimming across the top. Or like of a, a gouge. Yeah, a gouge working yeah. across a board. It's deeper in the middle than on the sides. Mm -hmm. And um, all of our planes have some camber yep um smoothing plane has the least very little very little but camber some. but yep. just enough right um the four plane uh has quite a bit of camber mm -hmm. um some examples in some traditions like uh german woodworking you have the scrub plane which is often a narrower iron and like, that is it is almost like a gouge it's crazy right? super deep in so the people think of oh yeah like the scrub plane and so yeah. they put this wacky crazy huge camber yeah. on it and it's like well that's that's more of a scrub plane that's not really what we're talking about we're talking right. about like eight to ten inches of of camber the radius yeah uh, being eight to ten inches um and no i don't ever measure it i don't know it doesn't yeah. really matter but that's if you needed to if you wanted to trace that mm -hmm. make an eight or ten inch radius and look at it and go oh like that much right okay and then just go do it and whatever you end up with is fine yep the other thing that's interesting too is I have found uh, a lot of old planes, it's like, it's almost like, you know, again, nobody was scribing an arc or trying to right. like grind their camber to match a perfect thing. It really is just heavy relief on the edges. Right. So it ends up turning into this, this radius, but, um, there are a good number of, uh, old planes, or even if you look, you can, this is cool. You can look at the plane tracks that are left. Mm -hmm. And there is, it's not like this perfect circle scoop. Sometimes there is somewhat of a flat in the middle. Right. So it's, it's almost like a, um, the radius changes. So mm -hmm. at the edges, it's really scooped. And then the middle, it kind of flattens out somewhat. And then it goes back to heavy scooped. There's not some perfect thing. It's not saying you all should do that. And let me give you a drawing or a tracing of the ideal. No, no, no. Right. The point is, it's not that actually that big of a deal. Um, what you're trying to do is take a really deep bite with the plane without digging in, yeah, you know, in your corners. corners. Yep. That's basically it. Yep. So you need a massive amount of um, relief at the edges. And so you make this radius, this eight to 10 inch radius, yep. so that you know that you're never going to touch the corners, which is related to sharpening. You know, when I was teaching sharpening, uh, 
I remember I was down at Lost Art Press uh, teaching a class there, and I was going through freehand uh, sh honing, sharpening, and with this heavy camber, they'd get to the edges, and I would tell them to stop honing the yeah. very, very corner, the very, very edge. Yeah. And they were looking at me like, I'm not done. And I'm like, the yeah. whole point of the camber is so that you don't get the edges yeah. into that the wood. never touch wood. Why would you hone that? Yeah. <laughs> I do not make any <laughs> sense. So it's fine if it gets touched, but really you don't want to agonize over something that you've already ground away so that it does not touch the wood. Right. Yeah. So why put a mirror polish on that part of it? Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, it's it's funny to, um, to go through these and see how they, they do tie together because it is... Uh, as we talk about the pre-industrial mindset, it's just a different way of approaching um, uh, tools and techniques and work surfaces and um, and materials. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what is the pre-industrial way of looking at materials? Raw materials, you you go to the uh, the hardware store, right, and you you get a stack of stack of boards. You want some number two, right, number two pine, mm. <laughs> um, to build your furniture. Yeah, uh, I mean. No, that was never uh, an option. I mean, at best, you could go to the mill in town and get some rough uh, four-quarter or eight-quarter stock, and then right. you got some work to do, right? Yep. Um, and obviously, mills have been around for a long time. Yeah, very long Cabinet time. makers were not milling their own boards. They were right. buying milled boards, but they were all rough. They yep. weren't like, you know, all four-squared and yep. lined up. And uh, if you're building chairs, you're just going out back and chopping down a tree and getting out, you know, chair stuff or whatever mm -hmm. they'd call it. Yep. Um, so that you could do some turning uh, while the wood's green, uh, and then you're going to let some of that dry a bit before you fasten it into your your seat or whatever you do. So really, um, that kind of mindset short circuits the supply chain. Mm. Um, you are not dependent on this lengthy process of, Harvesting wood, it goes through the kiln, it's dried, it's loaded on trucks, it goes one place to a depot, it's loaded on other trucks, it goes somewhere else. Like most boards in North... And then you North... buy it plastic wrapped on the yeah, shelf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, most boards in North America travel thousands of miles, sometimes from one coast to the other and back before they get to the store. And that is, that is nuts. That's insane. Like there are trees right here, yeah. you know. And um, if there aren't trees right here in front of you, what are you doing? Yeah, Go somewhere you should, where there are trees. Um, yeah, <laughs> we need trees. Uh, so I feel like they're important. Yes, trees trees are very important. Um, but the idea of, um, you know, we have in our apprenticeship program, week seven is Greenwood week, where it's it's kind of this whole different thing, right? Where we, we send our students out into the woods with an ax. And oftentimes they have to, uh, well, always they have to prepare ahead. Most people don't live uh, with a big wood lot where they can just go out and, mm -hmm. and fell a tree. Um, but our students are super creative. And sometimes they, uh, like we've had students who um, live in a development and they have these bit, like these ornamental trees out in front of their house. And uh, this one guy said <laughs> his wife has never liked them. So he went out with his ax and, you know, he's got this big, like, like your typical house on a cul-de-sac, right? And he's out there with an ax felling this big ornamental tree. And he he took a video of it to share with us and the neighbors were gathered around. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was awesome. But 
but he's sourcing his materials. And so part of what we have our students do for that week is you cut it down, you bucket to length, you rive it, you split it, you plane it, and you're getting stock out. And of course, mm -hmm. these are small trees, so you're getting small stock. We're not having them go out and fell like an 18-inch diameter right. tree. Um, it's you know six inches or smaller. Um, but what that is doing is is really unlocking this potential. Like trees or wood grows on trees. That's mm -hmm. where wood comes from. Yeah. And so go get some and see what it's like. Well, and I think the point of that is not to be, you know, you're not saying that to be silly. You're saying right. we we do have a disconnect. We know that they grow from trees, but if you've never taken a tree down and, you know, rive the stock or mm -hmm. um, saw it or deal with it wet, you really don't have a concept of what is this stuff yeah. I'm even working it? with. Yeah. Um, it's not really... Um, unpredictable metal mm -hmm. or uh, <clears throat> junky plastic right it's wood yeah and it, it has its own characteristics and if you don't understand that if you haven't um and i mean if you haven't related to it if you haven't worked that stuff you really don't have a, a strong concept of you know how does this material behave what is wood right. so i think that's an important part of it <clears throat> yeah i mean the kind of the the big box store mentality affects us in many ways you know it affects the way we think about food um certainly affects the way we think about wood. Um, and so when, when we go and seek to source materials, either by going out into the forest and looking for them, or by uh, even, um, you know, like reusing lumber. Like, yep. like you take down an old structure and pull it apart to make, make use of that material again, mm -hmm. right? That's a valuable thing to do. And it allows you to, again, short circuit that supply chain. Yeah, and you would think, oh, that's, you know, we don't have as many wide boards anymore, and so we have to salvage stuff, and that's a new thing. Not really. I mean, people would, you know, reuse material a lot throughout history. If you have a bunch of wide boards, and you have a shed uh, that is sheathed with these wide boards, mm -hmm. and you don't need the shed anymore, now yeah. you've got a bunch of boards, yeah. and you got framing lumber. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, using, getting comfortable using salvaged uh, material um, is goes a long way and you know just you know I've thought about uh, I've purchased lumber from all sorts of different situations um, from a lumber yard to you know overstock someone has to uh, you know felling trees and riving stock all sorts of stuff but what I found is when when you are in a community of people and no I don't mean a social media community I mean right. a community where people live like a real one yeah um <laughs> And you have neighbors, and you know that you're, you know who your neighbor is, and they know that you're a woodworker, mm -hmm. and they say, "Oh yeah, I have you know either it's a box of old tools or uh, this stack of some boards, some leftover boards, or we're you know redoing our kitchen and the the wide pine flooring is coming out, or I have some some oak boards or whatever." They always are looking for, you know, I want to send this to a good home. Right. And yeah. my encouragement is that you be that good home. Yeah. <laughs> that you be that good neighbor. Yep. You be that person involved in your community and you do uh, demonstrations for kids on Saturdays and get them doing woodworking. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows you're a woodworker. And what happens is your phone starts ringing and people say, hey, I have this stack of old boards and I just yeah. want someone to use them. And I know that you're, you love wood mm -hmm. and do you want that? And that's how reclaimed material finds you. Yeah. Is that you're a good neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's, it is a beautiful thing how, how that process works. Um, at Joshua, you were just given a post vice, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Uh, this old uh, blacksmithing post vice. 
uh, just because, you know, you, you, you smell like a blacksmith, right? <laughs> <laughs> like people, they're like, whoa, he, he's, I bet he works with, with iron. Um, no, I mean, it's, well, you do, you give off when this is what you're excited about and this is what you're sharing with your friends and family and neighbors, people will want to share back. They yeah. have, you know, grandpa's tool chest and they say, yeah, I, I'm never going to use these. I don't want this to just rot. Yeah, and so we have people ship stuff to us. It's unbelievable. Like a, a friend of the family sent me a box of a bunch of stuff. I mean, yep. that happens. And it's not because, oh, well, you know, like the Mortis and Tendon people have their readers send them stuff. I mean, we are grateful for those few totally. instances that that's happened. But I'm talking about friends and family members mm-hmm. from across the country said, oh, I know Joshua would like this, this you know, old hand planer. I'm going to send him yeah. one of those things. And, you know, that, that happens because... Yeah enthusiasm and passion for what you're doing is infectious and people go wow and they get excited that you're excited and they want to facilitate that Mm -hmm. so that happens with lumber that happens with all sorts of stuff and it's just a very different way of thinking about getting lumber it's not uh that you know i just want to compare prices on all the price lists and order from these particular suppliers it's right just being involved in a community and and stuff emerges and then you you say well i have the stack of cherry Mm-hmm. that some guy called me i had this one instance uh this guy gave me a stack of cherry he had milled up this was leftover and so i started building furniture out of it based on the boards i had mm-hmm. so your design then is dictated by the material you got from that guy up the road right that's that's how we build furniture by hand yeah so that's an exciting cool uh you know, like a dynamic thing yep and so one of the um one of the questions that opens up is um you know, and we we have heard these kinds of questions uh, about how do I how do I store this stuff? Where do I keep it? Tarps, you know? yeah, tarps in the yard. <laughs> yeah, just uh, you know, the top layer will rot, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah, and and that is an important consideration. We've uh, talked about uh, different ways that people can find creative solutions to storage because uh, lumber does take up space, um, but again, it's a valuable thing to, to have around, to have a stash of, mm-hmm. to have a good size stash of. So yep. we talk about, um, you know, typically um, old shops would, they talk about storing the lumber in the garret or, mm-hmm. you know, like overhead, the, Upstairs, yeah. the, the half story above the shop. Um, also, there's always just storage outside. I mean, lumber doesn't mind being outside right. for long periods of time as long as it is not perennially wet, right? Yep. You, you stack it, you sticker it so air can move around it, and then you get something so that the top sheds water or snow. And that'll be fine yeah. for a and long it'll time. it'll sit there for a long time. Uh, when you use it, you've got to let it acclimate to your shop. So bring it in, let it sit for a bit. Yeah, and you want to watch out for, you want it on um, bunks or you know big pieces of material that keep it up off the ground right. or the bottom layer is going to rot. Um, which I've had happen before that my bunks were insufficiently tall. Mm. I only had like, you know, two inch bunks and there was a hump mm. in the middle and it was touching the bottom board and it rotted that part. Um, but the other thing you want to watch out for is grass growing up from underneath into your oh, pile. Yeah. That will yeah. bring the moisture up to your boards. So if if you watch out for those things, you keep the, the rain and snow off it and you prevent grass from growing up into it mm-hmm. and this got airflow through it because it's all stickered material. It's going to last years and years and years and years. Yeah. So it's a it's a good long it's a, you know it's got a, a long track record of success. That's mm-hmm. a good way to go. Yeah, 
And uh, again, it's a good thing to do, uh, to be creative about, because you wanna, you wanna be able to draw from those piles for years and, uh, and share that generosity when someone has given those piles to you. Um, yeah. You know, you can make stuff for your neighbors and then that begets more of their generosity towards you. You know, yeah. they, uh, they wanna give you something in return. So the last thing, the last uh, category that we were uh, thinking about is um, this this idea of um, making old new again. There's all sorts of questions that come in that, you know, again, this isn't about just trying to you know, live in the past, some sort of uh, anachronism, uh, and it's not about historic uh, interpretation or something. It really is about making what is old new again for today and for the future. Mm. And one of those things that we found... Um, Another, you know, like we've talked about, the foreplane is the epitome of, of uh, this coarse tool thing. Well, the epitome of making old new again for us is we've been restoring a lot of window sashes, mm-hmm. um, antique windows, and uh, reglazing the the wavy glass and using them. We have those in the wood shop, um, and with the the house that I'm we're building. If you've listened to prior podcast episodes, you know about the 1810 house we're restoring right now actively. Um, and we're going to be uh, restoring old sash windows for that too. Um, there's just a lot of sash work we're doing, and I think a lot of people can't wrap their heads around that because you know you you watch these renovation shows or you read some um, old house restoration books or something, and the very first thing you do is get rid of the old windows because right. they're junk. Yeah, and so you want to get nice double pane windows because yep. they're more you know energy efficient or something. Right. And so you just throw the old out because now we've replaced it with something better, right. which is rubbish. It's complete super rubbish. Um, so the thing is that you know these windows, these sashes have been uh, performing and functioning for 150 years, mm-hmm. active use. They're ready to go. All they need is it's it's a little bit of wood, a few sticks of wood, mm-hmm. some glass, and some putty. Mm-hmm. That's the whole system. Yeah. And if you keep up with the putty. Mm-hmm. you will have a seal. And um, so people ask about, you know, um, are, aren't they aren't, are they warm in the winter at all? Aren't you worried about that? How do you seal them? How do you deal with um, this the porosity of these old windows? Because, you know, we've all heard a bunch of stories. We've all, ex- I mean, many of us have experienced um, leaky windows and the cold coming in. And uh, part of that is due to, it's basically about how fussy do you want to get? Um, because there have been uh, historic preservation studies and, and things that have been done to basically use that system with a single pane storm window mm-hmm. and be very precise about all the restoration, and they do perform just like a double pane window. Right. Um, that doesn't mean every old window performs like that. It means it is possible to you get them to perform like this if you're careful. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. it really is just about um, what do you want to do with it. Um, if you if you value old craftsmanship and you value the old glass and that kind of stuff, um, learn how to glaze, mm-hmm. learn how to repair these sashes, learn how to um, air seal and put gasketing material and make sure you put your storm windows in and all of that. Um, you will have a really tight system. Yeah. Um, it's when you say, it, it's sort of like if you were to say, someone buys an old hand plane at a yard sale and it's rusty, not sharp, and the handle's broken, mm-hmm. and they say, "All oh, these hand planes are terrible." Yeah. <laughs> well, 
No. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, it needs a little work and then it'll work great. Exactly. And so then you look at these old windows and you say, look at this. I mean, there's a whole pane missing and the glazing is falling out yeah. and they rattle. I mean, these are terrible, these old right. windows. Well, yeah. what in the world? You got to restore them. You have to get right. them back Bring functioning. Back. So uh, I think that's the fundamental thing. And of course, I mean, they're not uh, hermetically sealed. They're not perfectly uh, sealed, you you do have to restore them, mm-hmm. but um, they are uh, something that you can take the old, the genius. I mean, what happens with these double pane windows is after 20, 30 years, yeah. they are going to go in the landfill. Yeah, they'll cloud up, they'll get moisture in, uh, you'll haul them out, throw them in the landfill and get a new set for another 25 to 30 years. And think about that in the lifespan of a 150 year window. That's five sets of windows that are in the landfill. Yeah, that's the genius of technological progress. Yeah, that's, that's We have right. to keep throwing it out. We It is a throwaway uh, society. It's full of plastics and all this. It's just a crazy system. And not not to mention just expense. Like people say, oh, doesn't it take time and energy to, to refinish, reglaze windows? Well, yeah, but have you priced out new windows for your house? <laughs> like just go with the And then the replace them vinyl. every 25 yeah, years? and then the labor of Holy doing it. Holy smokes. Um, it's it's really wild. So, uh, yeah, we we really have enjoyed doing the sash window work. Uh, some of the glass is absolutely crazy. It's so beautiful in the mm-hmm. waviness and and the 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 panes with bubbles in them. Yeah. Um, it's it's really neat. Uh, it gives you a, a new perspective on you know looking out through because you move your head and and the uh, what you're looking at changes mm-hmm. uh, in a in a very interesting way. Um, tangent, but we've recently heard from someone who, uh, they, they wrote to us last year as well. Um, there's a, a place called old window restorers in Warner, New Hampshire. Uh, and they do a lot of like old sash work. Um, they restore old windows. They also make new uh, windows, um, kind of in the old style. Um, but they're hiring if you're interested in diving into <laughs> You know, some of this window stuff as a profession, if you're in the New Hampshire area or want to relocate, uh, it's it's like northwest of Concord, I think. Beautiful area. You know, New Hampshire is great. You know, live free or die is their motto. This episode brought to you by Old Window Restorers. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just, it's cool to see people restoring these things. Uh, the book that we've uh, used to teach, to learn how to restore these windows is a book uh, written by John Leake, L-E-E-K-E. It's an ironic um, name for a window guy. Yeah. It's great. Hmm. I never thought about that. But he has a YouTube channel that's great as well. Um, and he's talking about preserving America's windows, I think is the name of the book. Um, so yeah, there's a lot out there that you can uh, look at and learn from, but it's worth learning. It's worth looking at how can we be smart about the future and not mm-hmm. just think, you know, throw away at the throw the stuff of the past away because now we know better. Um, and there's this really great uh, excerpt from one of our favorite writers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, a 19th century wit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he's so quotable. He's so great at uh, just putting his finger right on the issue at hand. And he has this, um, this excerpt that I wanted to share today talking about this. Which I think, again, just he really hits the nail on the head. He says, The whole modern position is based on this idea that we have got all the good that we can out of the ideas of the past, but we have not got all the good out of them. Perhaps at this moment, not any of the good out of them. 
And the need here is a need of complete freedom for restoration as well as revolution. We often read nowadays of the valor or audacity with which some rebel attacks a hoary tyranny or an antiquated superstition. There is really not any courage at all in attacking hoary or antiquated things, any more than an offering to fight one's grandmother. The really courageous man is he who defies tyrannies young as the morning, and superstitions fresh as first flowers. The only true free thinker is he whose intellect is as much free from the future as from the past. He cares as little for what will be as for what has been. He cares only for what ought to be. Nice. And I just love that. He's saying, you know, we think, oh, we're not so constrained by the thoughts of the past. We're so free. We're totally bound by what's now. Right. He's saying, get real. You're bound by what's now. How about let's think about what do we want to do today? Don't be stuck in the past and don't be stuck in today, what people are telling you today. Just think about what do I want to accomplish and, you know, what what ought to be, as he put it, what mm-hmm. what is the good here mm-hmm. and what's the good in the past and how can I get the most of the good and dispense of the things we, we, you know, don't want in our lives. So I think Chesterton, you know, really highlights that. And that's really the M&T vision for what we want to do with woodworking. It's taking the, the old, the, the good of the old and bringing it today and saying, let's embrace this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and... In, in all these five areas that we've talked about today, we are, we're seeking to, to spread that understanding as well as we can. Uh, and that includes, you know, through this podcast. So uh, wrapping up for today. Yeah, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tendon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, you can leave them below. Thanks for listening.